welcome back to the Ancient World Morning Coffee Show. Hope you're having a great morning. Hope you're doing well. And uh, we're back now after a long break, and we're just going to have a very slow, easy warm-up episode, and we're going to talk about a little bit of updates, and then also about the... Uh, to have a bit of Dante, we're going to talk about the letter to Cangrande de la Scala that he Dante wrote to his patron in Verona, and just look at a couple of the paragraphs in that letter. But a bit of the updates first. We're really enjoying... We're looking more into the the part of the so-called medieval times from uh, the Great Schism, 1050 to 1320 or 1321, uh, when Dante uh, passes away, and just to understand more of the context of the comedy and his times, and also to get a bit better understanding of of the papacy and also of kind of the, the bigger parts of Europe at the time with the Holy Roman Empire and the French kings, and then also then the papacy and how... Tuscany is just this one part that is being, in Dante's view, uh, occupied by the, the papal states. And it's becoming more clear how Dante's exile is in some ways more about him losing his uh, his city, his city-state, his country, uh, to an occupying power more than he being kind of wandering around ho- um, homesick. But it's more about uh, the this... Uh, so a kind of imperial papacy spreading at the time. So uh, we're listening to just a little uh, recommendation there. We're listening to the podcast by John Strickland, Paradise and Utopia. And his third book is coming next month, I think, uh, in November. And then that will be about the time from 1500 to 1900. But it's very interesting to see the consequences of this era that starts with the schism and and the papacy. This becomes a bit of church history, but it's also a lot more influential on the cultural history of of Western Europe uh, than it's often recognized. So it's uh, it's a nice supplement to understand things. So that's uh, on the podcast. There are kind of little reflections from Strickland about things that will come in the book then next month. So uh, that's kind of the the main focus for <laughs> research at the moment. But we're going to talk about Dante and the comedy and how he frames his comedy and how he explains some of it to his patron. There's a nice opening here with uh, the letter. So this is generally called Epistle 13, the last of the 13 epistles that we have from Dante. And the opening is this. To the great and most victorious Lord, Lord Cangrande de la Scala, Vicar General of the Principate, of the Holy Roman Emperor in the town of Verona and the municipality of Vicenza, his most devoted Dante Alighieri, Florentine in birth but not in character, wishes him a happy life through long years as well as a continuous increase in his glorious reputation. So that is the <laughs> opening of the letter. And uh, then he keeps going with the outstanding praise of your magnificence which watchful fame spreads abroad on flying wings and it keeps going. So we're going to just <laughs> jump to um, where he starts explaining a bit of the, the the comedy in itself. There's one nice quoting here of fr- from Aristotle and the ethics. He talks about uh, like friendships and uh, friendships between equals and not equals and talks about uh, pleasurable and useful friendships. This is a bit of an aside, but it's, 
It's one of those things in the ethics from Aristotle when he talks about like three main categories of friendships, uh, which have like different natures. You have the one friendships for uh, utility that they're useful for for some reason. You have the pleasure pleasurable friendships who just you enjoy the company, and then you have the friendships based on virtue and kind of respect for the other person's character. And then one of the arguments for for Aristotle is that the virtue friendships are the ones that are going to last for for a very very long time. The other two, if it's for utility or for pleasure, they have a certain uh, they will last for a certain time and then they will often just kind of dissolve or kind of fade out for different reasons. If, one often would be that there's no utility anymore or also like pleasure. So this is another topic in the ethics, but pleasure tends to fade over time, which is a, sort of a big topic. But like if you have pleasure or also some kind of happiness, not not the way that he describes happiness because happiness in the Aristotelian world is about doing things, kind of the virtuous activity of the soul, but it's like doing things that build virtue, for example, or just kind of exercise virtue is happiness. So like happiness is a verb for Aristotle. But if you think of kind of finding a paradise in life and full of pleasure, then it will tend to become familiar and then it loses its effect as pleasure. So, but that's just a little aside in the beginning here. We have from uh, number seven, paragraph seven. This is a good part because here he describes the work in itself. So he says, for me to be able to present what I'm going to say, you must know that the sense of this work is not simple. Rather, it may be called polysemantic, that is, of many senses. The first sense is that which comes from the letter. The second is that which is signified by the letter. And the first is called the literal, the second allegorical or moral or anagogical. Which method of treatment that it may be clearer can be considered through these words. So, end quote, we're going to get a little example with some, and using these four perspectives. So the quote is, When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a barbarous people, Judea was made his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Psalms 1.13 If you look at it from the letter alone, it means to us the exit of the children of Israel from Egypt at the time of Moses. If from allegory, it means for us a redemption done by Christ. If from the moral sense, it means to us the conversion of the soul from the struggle and misery of sin to the status of grace. If from the anagogical, it means the leave taking of the blessed soul from the slavery of this corruption to the freedom of eternal glory. Those are four different senses of it. And though these mystical senses are called by various names, in general all can be called allegorical because they are different from the literal or the historical. Now allegory comes from the Greek aleon, which in Latin means other or different. So this was a very established way of reading text in the ancient and the medieval times with four levels. You have the literal and then you have the other ones, the allegorical ones, or spiritual ones, sometimes called, which is then the allegorical, kind of symbolic, and then you have the moral, which is in some sense about, well, often about like right or wrong in the world, or just like effects, cause and effects in actions also. And then anagogical is the, like, um, it's kind of, if it brings you closer to the divine or it 
increases your understanding of the divine, which in the medieval thinking will will then automatically make you more aligned to kind of the divine realities and the, and the full realities. So those are the four levels. And then paragraph eight is also interesting. Now that we have seen this, it is obvious that the subject around which the two senses turn must be twofold. And therefore it is to be determined about the subject of this work when it is taken literally, then about the subject when it is understood allegorically. The subject of the whole work taken from a literal standpoint is simply the status of the souls after death, taken simply. The movement of the whole work turns from it and around it. If the work is taken allegorically, however, the subject is man either gaining or losing merit through his freedom of will, subject to the justice of being rewarded or punished. So this is uh, an interesting definition. It's about then, literally it's just about the status of the souls, but in allegorical senses it's also about uh, the consequences of how you exercise your free will or how you have rewards or punishments according to your actions. And then there's a big insistence in the whole of the Divine Comedy that we have free will, we have the freedom to choose. That is kind of what is us, that is sort of the soul in itself in some sense. In, so, Or if you look at the other way, if you don't have a free will and you're able to choose anything, you don't exist as a, a spirit or a soul or a person even in that thinking. So that's kind of a basis of the thinking that you have the agency, you have the possibility to make choices, to build your future, and there will be consequences kind of just by like mechanical consequences of different sorts of actions. So uh, that's kind of the main uh, part of the letter where Dante is just being really explicit in <laughs> how the work is built and what he means with it. And he also says a little bit more in paragraph 15, where he says the purpose of the whole and the part could be multiple, that is both remote and proximate. But leaving off subtle investigation, we can say briefly that the purpose of the whole as well as the part is to remove those living in this life from the state of misery and to lead them to the state of bliss or felicita in the in the Latin. So that is the practical purpose of the work that Dante is writing, is to move people from a state of misery to a state of happiness. So there are, we, we see already there's so many levels to how, how he is composing this big work. And um, it's also, there's another little kind of uh, list of elements in uh, this one of those methods in the medieval times, what they call the Ars Dictandi, which is kind of how you compose a treatise, also epistles, which Dante is using here, which is then, so this is just for a bit of trivia, but uh, any doctrinal work has six things, which is subject, actor, form, purpose, title, and the type of philosophy. Especially the last element, the sixth element is interesting. So when they wrote treatises or, or epistles, letters, formal letters, they also included kind of in which school of philosophy th this letter of th the writing, like where it comes from. So 
uh, and Dante is usually very firmly based in the Aristotelian philosophy and the and that of Thomas Aquinas, the theology of Thomas Aquinas, and and also a, a little bit of uh, the Franciscan as well with Saint Bonaventure, for example. Okay, so that's all we wanted to say from just have a little bit input of uh, of the Divine Comedy this morning and. Um, in general, it's this um, autumn has come fully. It's about ten degrees up here. It's a kind of gray, rainy most days, but then you have the sunny days that are super beautiful. So that's also very nice. And we're going to look forward now to um, we have rebooted the the other kind of this, the Dante's Divine Comedy podcast. We made a couple of episodes there, so it's going to be a bit more on the history and the context of the work which is interesting because Dante is very much in dialogue and conversation with his times. So that's been uh, kind of given a little bit of new uh, <laughs> new motivation, new inspiration to, to keep building on that podcast. So far, it only had 15 episodes of The Purgatory, kind of a walkthrough of The Purgatory, which is in many ways a great starting point to get a sense of the, the practical aspect, again, of Dante, like how how to change your life, how to start changing your life and and a bit of a, of a map of kind of how to work through these things and some ideas of vices and virtues. You can call the Mount Purgatory. It's, it's both based on the theology of the times with kind of the seven, seven uh, sins, meaning then again, missing the mark, seven big mistakes, moral mistakes. Uh, but it's also very much a, a mountain of virtue in the Aristotelian thinking which is again merging theology with uh, Greek philosophy. And it's also interesting to see how Aristotle is, is often talking about like acts or acting is then building habits and habits are building character or virtue. So there's, there is this, uh, this steady kind of solid work that is needed and also the path to changing and then to building something. And you have also this idea of the active principle as or active condition, as Aristotle calls it, which is that first you build a skill, you do actions to build a skill. And once you have the skill or active condition, then your actions will come from the basis of the skill. And that's a very different uh, situation and it's a different way of exercising a skill that you have built. So it, it's a it's another way of saying that, like the beginning of something, when you learn a craft, that's one part, and then when you have gotten to a certain basic level of it, you exercise the craft, but you you do it for out of experience and out of your skills, and then it's often uh, even more joyful. Like the first part could be joyful because it's discovery and just new learning in itself and then afterwards it's the joy of exercising something you know and building and, and drawing on experience and if you love what you do then it becomes even more and more joyful this kind of vast repository of of experience that you can draw from and enjoy just doing something that you like to do which also ties into the idea of happiness as as uh, as activity like meaningful activity in some sense so um and again just there are two big books coming out this this fall that we're looking forward to one was as we mentioned in the beginning with john strickland and the, his third volume about the history of the last 2000 years 
And the other one is from Ian McGilchrist. So he has written a book he calls The Matter of Things, which is about both kind of material matter, but it's also about philosophy and and uh, brain science and also how we see the world. And it goes deep into many areas of philosophy and literature. And a little bit of theology is also, it seems like, but we will see when the book comes out on the 9th of November. So, but it's going to be, it's 1300 pages long, it's two volumes. So that's going to be kind of, it looks like it's going to be a massive kind of, uh, maybe a major work from McGilchrist. So with that, hope you're having a great coffee. We're still on our, we're almost finished with our first cup of coffee and, uh, we're hoping that we're going to have now a little bit of an autumn habit of doing this in at least some of the mornings and with some inspiration and some new inputs and ideas about the ancient world, about the Renaissance, about new books, about good life and just some uh, new discoveries as well. So with that, hope you're having a great morning and um, thank you so much for listening. Hope some of this was interesting and we'll see you again in another episode.